Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website ericlevy.com under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I'm pleased to bring to you uh, Sefer Daniel, Chapter Three, Perik Gimel. Nebuchadnezzar Malka Avad Salemdi Dahav Rumei Amin Shitin Pitayeh Amin Shet Akimei Bevikat Dura B'Medinat Bavel. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made a statue of gold 60 amot high and 6 amot wide, erected in the Dura Valley in the province of Babylon. There are a few things uh, to discuss as a a preliminary to learning this chapter. The first, certainly not the foremost, but the first is that uh, in last chapter, I translated Medina as either city or province. I said it might be either. But it's quite clear from here that the correct translation is province. A more important point is whether the events uh, that we saw in Chapter 2, Daniel's resolving the dream of the four-part giant statue and identifying its golden head as Nebuchadnezzar, whether all of those events directly lead to the events that we're about to see in this chapter. If so, is Nebuchadnezzar trying to countermand that first vision? where he saw a very breakable statue by building a statue which is made wholly of gold, since gold represents himself. Um, Another issue is, in chapter 2, we saw that Nebuchadnezzar prostrated himself before Daniel. He bowed to him and to God in heaven as a proxy, Allah Shemaya. The text there, in fact, uses the words nafal, to fall, and segid, to become prostrate or to to bow down. In this chapter, he commands his invitees to also nafal and segid, to bow down and prostrate themselves before this golden statue. So is it possible that Nebuchadnezzar is compensating or trying to counteract his own act of submission by having others bow down to a representation of himself, either directly to him or to his idol? Um, since Daniel himself is not in the story, uh, only the heroes, Daniel's three friends, are the heroes of the story. And remember, they were in the last story, but only in the sense that they helped Daniel just a little bit, and he helped them become administrators. So this might be a completely unrelated story, since Daniel doesn't makes a no-show here. Um, and it certainly could stand on its own as an edifying story about the kind of sacrifices, self-sacrifices, that might be necessary in exile as we're forced to, uh, as the Jewish people will be forced to take on uh, uh, rulership or worship which uh, counteracts their own. Uh, Jewish history, especially in medieval Europe, sees a lot of this kind of thing where Jews are forced into other religions and, and how they respond to it. <clears throat> However, if the events of chapter 2 do lead to the events of chapter 3, as I suggested, then I think that, that this chapter adds some other things. There are some other, um, has other edifying things to teach on us. Uh, first of all, that it's true, God will make you successful in exile, or can make you successful in exile in chapter 2, but as in what happens in chapter 3, that, that success, that very success, will almost surely bring about jealousy among the locals, and it could bring on confrontation with the big boss himself, because while he may be willing to promote you, he's not, he's willing to do so on his own terms, that is, don't push it too far. Um, on one hand, so we could say, therefore the message might be, on one hand you could say maybe it's best to stay insignificant, to lay low. Um, however, usually that leads to uh, you know getting rolled over by the events of history. On the other hand, becoming too powerful means complications and being hated. 
so in addition to the fact that uh, the message that self-sacrifice may be necessary when the Jew is in exile and he's asked to give up his identity and religion, there may be these other messages as well. The three friends in the story, by the way, don't refuse to, buy de- to bow down because they are confident that God will save them. The message of the, in the story is not that God will redeem you from the burning fire. Um, in fact, we'll see that they say God will, in fact, may not help them. The message is that they won't compromise in spite of the fact that God won't help them because they are not willing to throw away their religion for another. Another few items to note. <clears throat> Excuse me. An ama is about 1.5 feet. So the golden statue, which is built here, is 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Now, that's a big statue, but not the biggest statue. The Colossus of Rhodes, for instance, uh, which was built around 300 BCE, was over 100 feet high, about 107 feet, I believe. Um, if the statue wasn't gold-plated, or if it didn't have a base like the Colossus, then our statue here, 90 by 9, we don't know what the depth of it is, but let's say another 9, so that would weigh over 4,000 tons, which uh, is a lot of gold. It doesn't seem likely. Uh, there is a Greek historian, or historian which mentions a statue which was made out of 22 tons of gold, but 4,000 tons seemed much. So it may have stood on a pedestal uh, as in the Colossus of Rhodes, or it may have been plated with gold. Certainly these are possibilities as well. The more problematic measurement actually is not the 90 feet high. That's, that's very realistic. The problematic uh, measurement is the 9 feet wide. Now 9 feet wide is way too narrow to support that kind of statue. Um, in fact, there are some midrashim that mock the building of uh, uh, this this building of the statue that it fell down. They tried to stand it up and they fell down again. I mean, it's clear that nine feet wide is not really large enough, not by a long shot large enough to support a ninety foot high uh, statue, whether it's gold or gold plated. Um, however, I think there may be a significance of our measurement, uh, which is beyond uh, uh, just the practical measurements. But essentially, these measurements identify uh, this statue, this golden statue, with the second temple itself. Because with its base, Cyrus the Great specifically allowed that the temple, after the Babylonian exile was over, that it could be rebuilt specifically uh, 90 amot high. As it says in the book of Ezra, chapter 6, Bishnat chada lechoresh malka Koresh Malka Sam Teim Beit Eloha Biushalem Baita Yitpane Atar Di Dabchin Dibchin Veushohi Msovolin Rume Amin Shitin, there's the height of sixty Amot, Pitaye Amin Shitin. in the first year of Cyrus the King, Cyrus the king put out an order that the temple be built in Jerusalem, a place for offerings to be offered with a base built up high, 60 amot high by 60 amot wide. Now, our statue is not 60 by 60. It's 60 by 6. And I'm not trying to say that our statue was actually 60 by 60 and that there is a there is a number error here. Um, but what I think there's, there's no question in making it 60 by 6 is that the author of Daniel has Ezra in mind and picked a number, <clears throat> the, a realistic number, to remind the reader of, uh, of the, of the uh, dimensions of the Second Temple. Keep in mind, by the way, you may be saying Nebuchadnezzar lived before Cyrus the Great, and therefore our book comes before the book of Ezra. Uh, but the book of Daniel itself was probably written after the book of Ezra was written by Anshay Knesset Gadol at a slightly later time, as I mentioned mentioned in the first 
uh, in the first session. Um, if the number was intentionally picked, as I'm suggesting here, and it's not just a random coincidence that they're both 60 feet high and one is 60 wide, the other is 6 wide, it seems to me that Anshay Knesset Gdola, who are the authors of this book, are essentially trying the same trick. They're, they're using the same routine that they used when they wrote, say, for Esther, specifically. Uh, when they wrote the book of Esther, they made the palace of King Ahasuerus very similar to the temp, very similar to the temple in many ways. Uh, it was exactly three sections. The inner section you couldn't go into. The outer, se- the middle section was just for the aristocracy. The outer section were for the masses. <clears throat> it was made uh, out of uh, um, similar. Um, there were similar decorations. The it talks about the kalim, the utensils. All of this was done on purpose, <clears throat> not to say that Ahasuerus built his temple uh, based on the plans of the uh, the holy temple, in, or built his palace based on the holy temple in Jerusalem, but what they're trying to say is that the the Jews who went to that party in chapter 1 and who drank out of those vessels in the party, whether they really were from the Beit HaMikdash or not, and it seems unlikely that they were because the Beit HaMikdash uh, utensils weren't taken by Persia, they were taken by Babylon as we saw in the first chapter here. But essentially what the rabbis are saying in that Midrashic material by saying there's that comparison, saying that they replace their own culture, their own religion, with the hedonism, this kind of party religion that was the the religion or the culture of the Persians. So here too, the reason why it may be taking the dimensions which are identical to the Second Temple, or reminiscent of the Second Temple, is to say that to bow down to this idol, whose dimensions bring to mind the dimensions of the Second Temple, allow, uh, allow us to say that what's at stake here is not simply bowing down to a hunk of gold, but it, but by doing so, it, it, it makes a rejection. It causes it's it's a demonstration that God has been re- rejected and replaced, which explains why Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are unwilling to do so, and why they are willing to sacrifice their lives. Adar Gazarya, Gidab Raya, Ditav Raya, Tiftaye, Vechol Shiltone Medinta, Lemete, La Chanukat, Salma di Hekim, Nebuchadnezzar Malka. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent out to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's eyes, the treasurers, the judges, the enforcers, the tiftae, which we're not at all sure what that means, and all the other officials of the provinces, of all these provinces, to come to the dedication of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had erected. Um, the, the king's eyes, those adargazaraya, apparently were like uh, a secret service, but not so secret. They would apparently roam through the provinces and report back to the king directly what they saw. Beidayin mitkansin achash dar panaya signaya ufachavata adagazraya gedavraya ditavraya tiftaye v'chol shiltonei medinata lechanukat salma dehekim nebuchadnezzar malka v'kamin lekabel salma dehekim nebuchadnezzar dehakem nebuchadnezzar. Thereupon, all the officials, the officials, who I am not going to repeat again, came to the dedication of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar, had, uh, the king, had erected, 
and they stood before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had erected. Now notice that that uh, that repetition, and it's not just the repetition of the king commanded X in the previous verse, and then X happened in this verse. The, the side point that the king was the one who erected the statue is repeated over and over and over again. And I think what the author is trying to do uh, uh, by by repeating in such a way is to tell us how significant this event is. The statue is tied to and identified as representing the king. Bowing down to it is bowing down to the king's dominion. It may even be that uh, that it's uh, demanding that people recognize that the king is a proxy or an embodiment of whatever god this uh, this uh, statue may have represented. On the other hand, the statue may not represent the god. It may actually represent himself. As I said in the previous dream that he had, the golden head was him. So he, by making it out of gold, he's essentially saying... All of these people are bowing down to me, but rather than having a king with feet of clay, I am making a uh, a king who is whole and priceless and colossus, that is uh, me. <speaking in Hebrew> And the herald cried out loudly, I say to you, O peoples and nations and all those of shared language, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the zither, the lyre, the psanter, whatever that is, the symphony, whatever that is, and any other instrument, you shall fall and be prostrate before the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar the king has erected. In modern Hebrew, a psanter is a piano, but I, I don't think that was what it was then. They surely didn't... Uh, didn't drag a baby grand out into the valley. And in Greek, and of course English, symphony means a collection of instruments playing together. But here it's a single instrument, so perhaps it means like a, an instrument with two or three pipes that, that play at the same time. Uh, my translations of the instruments is obviously loose. Uh, we don't know for sure exactly what type of instruments these were. Uh, but the point is clear. When you hear the music, that's when you begin to bow down. Umandi lo ye pelvis good, ba but whoever doesn't fall and become prostrated at that time will be thrown. The word rame doesn't mean to lift up as it does in Hebrew. It means to be thrown in Aramaic. Will be thrown into the furnace of burning fire. Again, you have the command verse and then the actual event, which is repeated almost word to word. In response to that, that is in response to the command, the moment that all the people heard the sounds of all these instruments, which I'm not going to repeat, uh, every nation and people and language group prostrated themselves before the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar the king had erected. But now the troubles begin. Verse 8. Kol kabil dina bezimna kerivu guvrin kazdain vaachalu kartsehon di yehudaye. While this was happening, I, at the same time, the Kazdim men, the Chaldean men, came and they slandered the Jews. Achalu kartzeon literally means eating from their flesh, because that's exactly the sense of what slander does, what Lashon Hara does to someone. Or, or perhaps the sense is that the goal of Lashon Hara is to take a chunk out of uh, one's flesh. Anu va'amrin levu'n 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 levu'cha netzar malka 
Malka Almin Chayi. They said and responded to Nebuchadnezzar, the king. And be careful, the word Anu Varmarim doesn't really mean they responded, but it means that they asserted. It could be a response, but it could just be a, a powerful statement. And what did they say? Quote, let the king live forever. Which is a little bit more optimistic, uh, but similar to our familiar long live the king. Ant Malka Samta Te'em Bichol Enosh Di Yishma Kol Karna Mashokita Katros Sabachap Santrin Besuponia Bichol Zanei Zemara Yipel Vizgud Litzelem Dahava It was you, O King, who commanded that every person upon hearing the sound of all these instruments, which I'm not going to repeat, or the sound of any instrument, must fall and be prostrate before the golden statue. And whoever doesn't fall and prostrate themselves will be thrown into the furnace of burning fire. Itai Guvrin Yehudaina Dimanita Yatun Al Avidat Medinat Bavel Shadrach Meshach Aved Nego Guvraya Ilech Lo Samu Alach Malka Teim but there are men, Jews, who you appointed as administrators of the province of Babylon. They are Shadrach, Meshach, and Aved Nago, who of course are Hananel, uh, Mishael, and Azariah. These men do not heed you. They not, do not worship your God. They did not prostrate themselves to the golden idol that you erected. Again, it's not clear if the statue is a statue uh, to Nebuchadnezzar himself, that is his domination, and that by bowing down to it, they're bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's uh, domination, or whether it's an idol to a god, maybe the god Bel. Um, it may be both, since here what we see is that the single act of bowing down uh, causes them to be accused of meaning rejecting both the king and his god. Badayin Nebuchadnezzar birgaz v'chama amar lahai ataya l'shadrach meshach v'aved nego badayin guvraya ilech heitayu kadam malka. Thereupon Nebuchadnezzar in fury and anger uh, commanded that shadrach meshach and aved nego be brought and then they were brought before the king. Anei Nebuchadnezzar v'amar lahon hatzda shadrach meshach v'aved nego the king said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Avinago, that you do not worship my God, or did not worship my God, and that you did not bow down to the statue? Now, here the statue seems separate from the worship of God, since they're accused of two separate things. And as we see, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar likes these guys. He's willing to give them a second chance, which he wasn't willing to give to his soothsayers in the previous uh, uh, chapter, if it wasn't for Daniel pushing him or, or really requesting that he do so. But uh, do not think that Nebuchadnezzar is going to uh, compromise on his honor or authority and keep these guys alive regardless of whether he likes them or not. Now, if you, from here on in, you hear the sound of all these instruments, which 
I'm not going to repeat. And fall and prostrate yourselves to the statue that I made. The unstated implication is fine, although it doesn't say that in the text. But, if you don't prostrate at that time, you will be thrown into the furnace of burning fire. And who is God? Meaning there is no God who will save you from my hands. That is, he's seen the Jewish God before, but uh, he does not believe, like any other God, that they could save uh, uh, that, that that God could save a human being from uh, a command of death by the king. We do not feel required to respond regarding this verdict, meaning regarding the fact that you are going to give us, put us to the death, to death. Rashi in some commentaries and other commentaries translate chashach from chashash, meaning we are not concerned enough to give an answer. But this gives the impression that they are sure that God will save them. And as we will see, they are not sure God will save them at all. That is not why they're willing to uh, go into the furnace. They are quite ready to die. They are quite ready for God not to save them. So I prefer Ibn Ezra's translation as we are not required to respond. I think it just works better within the context. Hain itai elahanna dianachnu palchin yachil l'shezavutana min atunura yakidita umin yadach malka yishaziv. If it must be so, that is, if you're going to throw us into the fire, our God who we worship can, in fact, save us from the furnace of burning fire, and he can and will save us, or no, actually I shouldn't say that, he can save us from your hand, O king. Uh, and if not, meaning if God decides not to save us, let it be known to you, the king, that we will not worship your God and we will not prostrate ourselves to the golden statue that you erected. As you might imagine from our previous dealings with Nebuchadnezzar, this doesn't go over so well at all. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar became so full of rage that his visage changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Avednego, and he responded and commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than its usual heat. And to some strong soldiers, some of the strong soldiers in his army, he commanded them to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Avednego and to toss them into the furnace of burning fire. The furnace must have been some kind of shallow cave, perhaps with an opening at the top for lowering things or people into, and perhaps it had a covered uh, metal opening at the ground level out of which, uh, with maybe a window, out of which Nebuchadnezzar looks in to see what's going on, and out of which we will find that the three will walk out unscathed. I hope that doesn't ruin the story for everybody. As usual, um, what we have is a sort of a two-verse combination. First, we have the verse where the king commands it, and now we have a verse which has a word-for-word actualization of what the king commanded. And by the way, I might as well get to why that happens and why there's so much repetition. That was a, a common style in the ancient Near East, especially for oral histories, or books 
books based on oral histories because uh, essentially the repetition helped the memorization of the story. So they were repeated off, over and over again. Items were repeated. Beidayin guvraya ilech kefitu b'sar balehon pat shehon v'char tahon ulavushehon uramiv lego atun nura yakirita. Then these men were bound uh, in their shirts and pants and cloaks and the rest of their clothes and th- and they threw them into the furnace of burning fire. The custom may have been to burn people in their clothes, but I think what's actually happening here is that there's this unthinking rush on the part of the king and on the part of those who are trying to do the will of the king, uh, which causes them to leave their clothes on. Verse 22. Kol kabil dina min di milat maka mach tsefa va'atuna ezei yatira and the result of this, of this impetuous command of the king, that they fired up the furnace too hot, and the men, therefore, what happened was, the men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Aved Nago were killed themselves by flames, which apparently leapt out of the fire. Now, it's not exactly clear who was killed. It could be the strong soldiers, perhaps, who tied them up. It could be the jealous Kazdim, who spoke Lashon Hara, that condemned them, or maybe both. The message is that anyone who slanders, uh, the simple, the surface message is that anyone who slanders against God's servants will get his comeuppance one way or the other. However, I think there's another message here, um, which is as follows. The death of Nebuchadnezzar's own people, his soldiers, should have told Nebuchadnezzar that what he was doing was wrong. Um, the fact that the fire leapt out and ate up these people, destroyed these people, should have told them that something was going wrong. Um, that the God that that uh, that uh, that that Nebuchadnezzar recognized was in heaven did not want them to be killed, but instead he ignores them. Maybe because of his own ego or hubris, or maybe because, as it seems to be, unless God makes things in your face, like he did with Paro and all of the, uh, the, the, the plagues, people tend to ignore the possibility that God is involved with human history. In any event, Nebuchadnezzar ignores the fact that God might have been already involved here and proceeds with his dastardly agenda. Uh, uh, and these three, the word tlat uh, is like shalosh, because the tough in Aramaic is the shin in Hebrew. Uh, these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Avinago, fell tied up into the furnace of burning fire. Edayin Nebuchadnezzar malkat tavah vekam bahala. Aneva Amar Lahadovrohi Halo Guvrin Tlata Remaina Lago Nura Mikapatin Anya Mikapatin Anyanva Amri and Lamalka Yitsiva Malka. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was amazed and stood up in shock. He responded and said to his counselors, Isn't it true that three men were thrown into the fire and they were bound up? And they answered the king, Indeed, okay. The word um the word Tava is like the word tama to be shocked or surprised in Hebrew, and the vav and the mem do switch around, but not so much between Aramaic and Hebrew, but between Semitic languages and Akkadian. Um, uh, that's about all I could uh, go into that. But the mem replaces the yud and vice versa, or mem replaces the vav and vice versa. Aneva amar ha anach guvrin arba shirayin mahalchin begoi nur nura. 
He, that is the king, responded and said, but I see four men walking about free without being consumed. And the appearance of that fourth man or fourth one is like a supernatural creature. Then Buchanetzar approached the opening of the furnace of the burning fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach, Vavenego, servants of the Most High, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Avenago came out from the midst of the fire. As I said in the previous chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is no monotheist. He is a performance-based kind of uh, worshiper. Um, he, if the god performs, so then he's very impressed. And here, while he's not a monotheist, he certainly can't deny that the god of the Jews can make things happen that he has not seen from any other gods, as well as he wouldn't, because they're not real. And then the satraps and the representatives and the governors and the counselors saw these men that fire had no control over their flesh nor did their hair get singed, nor did uh, their shirts change, that is, it didn't burn up, nor did the smell of fire cling to them. Notice that while, um, that, it was ev- that it was evident once they came out of the fire, that the fire did not affect them. Only Nebuchadnezzar apparently has seen the fourth being, that angel who freed them and protected them. Also note that the counselors are not mentioned in uh, uh that, that the counselors are, are mentioned in a set of four, uh, Achashtar Panaya, Signaya, Pachavata, and Hadovre. Um, and in fact, the friends' clothes are listed in a set of four, Sarbalehon, Pachehon, Charbalaton, Ulvushehon. This is a significant number in the book, number four, as I said, and it's not by chance. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Bless the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Avenago, who sent his angel, his messenger, and saved his servants who trusted in him, and countermanded the king's command, that is my command, when they gave their bodies, that is to sacrifice, they were willing to give up their bodies, in order not to worship and not to prostrate to any god except for theirs. And for me, let it go out, let it be a law, that any nation, people, or language group that speaks wrongly about the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Avenago will be ripped to pieces, and his house will be put on the dunghill, because there is no other god that has the ability to save in this way. 
Beidayin Malka Hatzlach Lishadrach Meshach Vavenego Bimdinat Bavel. Afterwards, the king promoted, he literally, he made them successful or more successful, Lishadrach Meshach Vavenego in the province of Bavel. So while they were already administrators, apparently of public works, uh, as requested by Daniel in the last chapter, there is apparently room for promotion. Now the question, one question uh, is, where is Daniel in all of this? Uh, he doesn't show up in the story at all. Uh, so perhaps he was on assignment, uh, maybe in a different country at the time, a different province, and he couldn't go, uh, since it's certain that he wouldn't have bowed down either had he been there. Uh, perhaps the people who slandered the three friends, Daniel was there, but uh, they didn't dare to take on Daniel since he was so powerful. But it's hard to see Daniel standing quiet in the face of his friend's death in this situation, not saying anything. Perhaps the author left him out of the story to show that these three, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, um, and Azariah, on their own right, independent of Daniel, without his help and his praying, were dedicated to God to the extent that they were willing to sacrifice themselves rather than lose their own religion, and therefore they merited salvation and immediate help uh, from God based on their own, uh, based on their own good deeds. Um, another thing to mention, of course, is that it's clear that there's a parallel here with the Midrashic story of Abraham being thrown into the furnace uh, into Ur-Kazdim, which was in the city of Ur, in the land that would later belong to the Kazdim. So we hear either we have history repeating itself, or the Midrash is inspired by this very story. Now, the last three verses, 31 to 33, in fact begin a letter from the king that has nothing to do with these previous events and continues on through chapter 4. Um, the chapter division, putting uh, uh, the chapter really should have ended here. It shouldn't have ended uh, after verse 33. It's simply a mistake. Um, historically, chapter 3 certainly comes after chapter 2. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 4 comes after chapter uh, three and the letter comes after the story because it's clear that Nebuchadnezzar in the letter recognizes what he calls Allah Ilah, the God on high. Uh, but the letter that he sends out is not res- in response to this uh, story about the uh, the uh, furnace. Um, it's in fact referring to a completely different vision that he has. So what I'll do, rather than doing the three last three verses, I'll save them for the next lesson on chapter four, and we'll pick things up from there.